1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? If adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones. From Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. You don't believe me. You will, Dr. Jones. Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spatero and I am joined today by Mr. Scott Rifen after I don't know how many aborted attempts to get a discussion together. I think we've been talking for, I don't know, the better part of a year about, yeah, when, when are you available? I don't know, when are you available? Um, we finally found the time, so this is kind of cool and the whole reason for this was because I think Scott had said something about uh, a screening of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and I find personally that that movie is much maligned, and I think wrongfully maligned, uh, so I wanted to get a discussion on it. I suspect that Scott agrees with me, but we haven't really discussed our thoughts all that much, uh, and hopefully this will not be the uh, cause of a new podcast rating uh, because we're too too intense for the listeners. Uh, how you doing today, Scott? I'm marvelous. I, you know, the part you didn't include about our attempts to do this have been, uh, how about today? Yes, today's good. Oh, wait a minute. Then it is today. Never mind, I can't today. There was a lot of that going on, too. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was, excuse me, a surprisingly large number With of some last minute bailouts occasions where yeah. that happened. But you know that's what happens when, uh, you know, when when real life gets in the way, unfortunately, and uh, there is real life. You know, what Indeed. can you do? But now, I'm gonna ask, first question. I'm gonna ask, just right out of the shoot. I'm gonna ask: Have you read or experienced any media? about this story beyond what's on the screen uh any any you know expanded uh, universe novels or anything because i know you're very into those into such things yeah. and if, if, if we actually had a video podcast the people would see all the novels behind you right now uh which are many uh and you could see a tremendous number of star wars novels i'm thinking you'd also be active in the indiana jones the indie shelf field the indie shelf is right down there um, you can't see it on screen, but uh, yeah, there's. Uh, I, I read the the tie-in. I'm a big. I've got a weird fascination with movie tie-in novels. I don't know why. That's just always been a thing. And it's it, kids today don't get that that whole movie tie-in novel thing because there's so few of them nowadays and they're so rare. It used to be like everything had a movie tie-in novel. I mean, just I mean, any just you you. Nowadays, if you look at old movie posters and things that you go, well, that's some weird, bizarre little drama, and then you look at the bottom and read the Valentine paperback. You're like, really? Um, yeah. But James Kahn did the novelization. I did read that back in the day, and it was it was pretty good. I assume not James Kahn, the actor. No, I'm sorry. James James <laughs> Kahn, not James Kahn. As in Kahnunian Singh? Yeah, yeah that, closer to that. It's... it's uh, I think the H is in a different place than uh, Khan Noonien Singh, but other than that, yeah, yeah. And he was a guy okay. who was big in the early 80s. He did Poltergeist, and he did Indiana Jones, and he did uh, Return of the Jedi. And so he you know, he was he was one of those guys who was the go-to novelist guy. In fact, I will be honest with you, his Poltergeist 2 is better than the movie. And that's, you know, it's rare for the movie to be better than a novel, as far as original novels, but then when you have a tie-in novel be better than the movie it's actually based on, that's even you know, more bizarre, I think, more rare. The key for me at this point in my life, because I have not had the amount of time to read novelizations that I once did, uh, I don't want a novelization where it's just adapting the movie into yeah. a book. Although if it is adapting the script or screenplay into a book, and getting what the original intent was or expanding on things that may not actually make their way into the movie. That's yes. something I'm interested in. I currently have right behind me here the uh, Planet of the Apes omnibus, oh, yeah. which will, which I'm told gives me a lot more on conquest and battle for the Planet of the Apes than what we get in the uh, actual film. So I'm looking forward to sitting down and well, reading those. Well, that's like those. John Jake's doing those, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah, yes, it is. Well, John Jakes did Conquest. Okay. David Gerald did that. David battle. Gerald, okay, yeah. Uh, I knew John Jakes was involved in at least one of those. I've got all those, too. Um, and, I mean, you know, John Jakes is like a heavyweight writer. I mean, he's been a big deal for yeah. decades. Um, and David Gerald, of course, and, you know, his Star Trek credentials alone are enough, right? His, uh, but yeah, that's exactly. that's that stuff just fascinates me. I love stuff like that, and that's one of the reasons too is that you know you do get some of those things. Um, the reason that the James Conn Poltergeist Two is so good is he does throw a lot of stuff in there that actually makes the story make sense in a way that it just doesn't in the movie. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah, I, I love stuff like that. But I I did read well that. by way of cross promotion. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Scott and I are planning to follow this up with our uh, reading and rating of the comic book adaptation of Indiana Jones and the Temple mm-hmm. of Doom, which will uh, follow this up. I, you know, this comes out on a Sunday. The following Saturday on Back to the Bins, there will be that episode where we discuss that. God willing to give us enough free time to get them both recorded before <laughs> one of us is called away with an emergency. <laughs> So we, we'll talk about that and how it expounds on the story slightly, uh, and and how how they do with uh, with with putting it into uh, a reading format. Uh, and that is my first thought is, and I haven't even gotten into seeing this movie, but when you're dealing with a movie like this, which is so much action and frenetic energy, uh, you would think that a novelization would not be able to capture that, uh, or even a uh, comic book adaptation, because you're not going to have that live movement, you're not going to have the excitement level, or it will be more difficult to create that live movement and excitement level, and we'll again, we'll get to that uh, in another week if you want to hear how we play with that. Mm. Now, being a, a, a bit older than you, I can tell you I saw this in the movies the week it opened with my buddies one of which uh, decided he needed to bring a bullwhip and fedora with him to the movie uh and i've from day one i've really enjoyed this movie i thought this was a worthy sequel uh and i always thought the criticism of it was overblown and i think as we go on we'll talk a little bit about that criticism and what we think about the different things that have come up uh but uh what was your first experience with it? Did you see it in the oh, theater? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw it opening weekend as well in the theater. A couple of weeks in the same theater, uh, a couple of weeks later, of course, uh, saw Star Trek III. Uh, same, mm-hmm. same exact theater. And uh, But, yeah, th- that was a great summer. There were some great movies that summer. That, that's, uh, you know, when people talk about 1982 being one of the all-time great movie years, um, 1984 is not too far behind it for me because there's a lot of really, really neat stuff that came out. But I... I I loved it. I'm like you. I loved it from minute one. And uh, one of the things that got me was back then you didn't have the Internet to immediately tell you you were supposed to hate it. You didn't find out for maybe sometimes <laughs> a year that you weren't supposed to hate it, uh, that you were supposed to hate it. And uh, I didn't know that I was supposed to hate it for at least a year. And then I found out it was dark. It was too dark. And I didn't know that because I had, there were so many funny moments that I laughed at during the movie. Now I feel bad that I laughed at all the funny parts because it was too dark. Yeah, you weren't supposed to I know. think it was funny. You're supposed to be yeah, offended, supposed to be by, offended by the jokes that were in the movie that was too dark. So I don't know what my problem was. Yes. And and I hear the, that criticism to date where people say, oh, you know, I, I only, uh, what's called The Last Crusade is the only worthy sequel <laughs> on this. And I, I'm always tempted to say that this one treads ground that that doesn't, which is good because you don't want to redo what they do in the, in the original. But yeah, I mean, eventually, I guess we'll probably get to, uh, to to the Last Crusade. But that also tempts that also treads new ground because you bring in his mm-hmm. father and different issues there. So I think that they really did a good job with this this trilogy. Uh, and we'll leave Kingdom of the Crystal Skull out of that for now because it was done not as part of the original plan anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I think this trilogy, I think what they did is they managed to capture the spirit of the character and the spirit of the mm-hmm. adventure that we were getting without ever making it feel like, oh, I'm just watching the same movie again uh, and, and getting a slightly different take on it. This is not 
you know, Jaws to Jaws two. This is a this is in my mind a worthy sequel. Yeah, and uh, and well, I was just okay. going to say the, the uh, to me the interesting thing about uh, the sequelness and the difference is nowadays when you watch The Empire Strikes Back and you talk to people, The Empire Strikes Back, oh, that's the greatest of all the Star Wars films, but it's also it's dark. much darker, yes, than the original. <laughs> also funny, but much darker. And again, that's the thing I didn't realize it was darker for years as well. But um, uh, it's much darker than the original film, and everybody, nobody seems to have a problem with that. It makes it the greatest because it's so dark. And then this one, and it's kind of the same thing. The middle installment of the trilogy takes you into the belly of the beast. I don't see a real problem with that. I don't. That's not a major issue to me. Uh, the darkness of it, but that's that's the big slagging point for it. But yeah, I I think it 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 stands to reason that you have the first one, which is an adventure. And it has its moments, and then the next one is much darker, and then you lighten up for the final one. Now, I, I think that you know you, you can definitely draw a distinction between this and the Star Wars trio, mm -hmm. uh, in that this like when you see Empire Strikes Back, I think the makers of that assume you've already seen Star Wars, and I am always loath to call it a new hope. Uh, You're not going to get any argument from I, me. Just, just like I'm, I'm loath to call it Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I will never do that. Uh, so, but you know, I think when when Empire Strikes came back, Strikes Back came out, they assumed you had seen mm -hmm. Star Wars, and they assumed you would see Return of the Jedi. These three movies all do stand alone much easier than the Star yes. Wars movies do. But, but now this movie does assume but, you've seen the first one because it. It takes it a does, lot of what he does. But you don't have to no, have seen the first No, but it takes a lot film. of what he did in the first film and a lot of things that happened in the first film and kind of inverts the trope, if you will. What did you think? First first question. Uh, I have my notes okay. here. I was watching the movie last night and I made notes on my nice. phone. Which is which is beyond my usual level of, <laughs> level of preparation, to be well, fair. Well, there's been a lot of time put uh, into thinking about doing this. So. Yes. So, well, for my first note, I'm going to just go with the notes in order, even though that... That may not have a natural, uh, a logical pro progression yeah. to them. My first, my first note was Kate Capshaw. What'd you think of her? Uh, that again, I will tell you. At the time, I thought she was a hell of a lot better looking than uh, Karen Allen. And I know that's not probably a, a real thing either for people, but uh, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> she may be more classically yeah, and pretty. I think that's what it was, than Karen Allen. But I think Karen Allen has a certain cut to a look, especially if we're talking circa 1981. Sure. But uh, but that was that was a thing that struck me at the time was I just thought she was much prettier uh, than Karen Allen. Um, I, I know again there was the criticism she's too whiny she's it but that's who the character is. Um, I, I think Kate Capshaw is a very good actress uh, when she does act, which is which is not that often uh, because I guess she's kind of she's kind of married to the money, but. Um, when she does act, she's she's an outstanding actress. She does well. This is you know, there's no reflection on her. She did the part the way she was supposed to do it. But uh, she's not supposed to be Marion. If she were, it, and that's again one of these things that if she had been just like Marion, there would have been criticism. But now she's completely different from Marion, and there's still criticism. Well, yeah, there's going to be yeah. criticism no matter what you do. Uh, I mean, Marion, the whole thing about Marion was while she may not have been as physically strong as Indy or even quite as clever as Indy, she was still 
a match for yes. him. She's still, you know, she you never felt like she was the lesser part no. of things. Uh, Kate Capshaw is the damsel in distress in most yes. of this movie. And that's the way she's written. And I think, and it brings you to my next note where I just wrote prequel. Uh, it brings you to that because if you make her too compelling... Then you say, well, where did she go by the time Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah, started? Yeah, such a challenge. This way you could just see it's kind of a passing yes. fling and it's over. Yes, it's it's kind of, as he says in the movie, there's still a long way to Delhi. But once they get to Delhi, what really happens here? Yeah, They're two different on. people, two different worlds. They shared an experience. They bonded during it. They swapped a little spit. Okay, we're good. Um, but yeah, Karen Allen, Marion, Marion's the one that entranced him when he was in college. And she's still on his mind years later. And, you know, obviously he's on her mind because she decks him. She slugs him one. Um, yeah, she is She is someone who you see him with long term. You see him who, who's stuck in his mind. This other one is, yeah, he'll have a fond memory or two in the in the future. But that's about it. Yeah, and I agree totally. And I think that plays well with her being the not quite as adorable, not quite as... Uh, not not quite having as much chemistry with Harrison mm-hmm. Ford as Karen Allen did, and I think that's by mm-hmm. design. And I think it's you know it, it's acceptable. They had a little bit of a sexual tension, uh, and and a, you know a little bit of an attraction, but there wasn't that same natural feeling that they should be a couple. No. And, and, and and I think that worked and that's well. The kind of adventure that is that classic old school adventure. You're going to have a guy girl dynamic. You're going to have the bickering, and that's the other thing is. You know, you had a uh, with Karen Allen's Marion, you had a bickering couple, and you have to kind of have that bickering. That's that's part of the the draw for people. But at the same time, uh, you don't want the exact same type of bickering. You have you have a very different type of of argumentative dynamic between the two of them. So I, I, again, to me, it works for what it is, and. I think you you set yourself up for ridiculousness if you go, well, this isn't as good as that because it's not exactly what that is. Yeah, and again, I want to capture the spirit of what it was, but I don't want to just see it again. Those old old, old Uh, school movies, though, I mean, this is what you had. You had the bickering, you know, male-female lead. You had the damsel in distress. All of these adventure movies like this, these are the kinds of things you did have. Well, that's one of my next notes in here is I'm actually – jumping around a little bit, but since it seems to fit in with the way the conversation is going, is, you know, these movies, especially the first two, were definitely designed to kind of recreate the feeling of the old serials, uh, where they would end on a cliffhanger, and then you'd have to pick it up the next week and see what went on. This one, of the... of the three of the trilogy, more than either of the other two, seems to have very, very definitive little chapters that you could set, you could mm-hmm. cut this movie into pieces and turn it into a serial uh, so easily. Uh, it, it really caught all of that, and it almost feels like I wish they had presented it that way huh. somehow, just to just to capture what you know my dad went through when he used to yeah. go to the movies as a kid, and and to see what that was like. And, and see, you know, each week, I, I guess the closest thing we've probably had to that in our lifetimes is probably 24, mm. uh, where, you know, each yeah. hour was was specifically an hour of the day, and it always would end on some sort of cliffhanger, and then the next week you'd pick it up right off that. That's the closest thing I can think of to it. But this movie, if you had the right person presenting it to you, they could show you five minutes or so, 
and then stop it and then say, okay, come on back tomorrow and we're going to watch the next five yeah. minutes. And it would, I think it would present exactly like one of those old and, serials. And with that comes big action set pieces. And I think it was Roger Ebert who referred to this movie as a bruised arm movie. For all the, for all <laughs> the, the things that we talk about with the, the criticism of this film, uh, Ebert's review of this was, was quite good. And uh, he referred to it as a bruised arm movie, which was if you have a date with you, your date will be grabbing your arm very frequently and quickly and hard and squeezing it at many different points in the movie so that by the end of the film, your arm is bruised from what your date has done to it. And uh, I, I think that's pretty emblematic of that. And for what it's worth, Roger Ebert gave it four stars, which was his top yeah, rating. Told you, that was He gave it a good review, unlike a lot of these guys. So that and that's why you didn't know it wasn't a good movie. Yeah, that's right. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't care what the critics said. Although I did watch, you know, I did watch Siskel and Ebert on TV a lot, but uh, didn't read his stuff back then because I didn't have access to it. I'm in Brunswick, Georgia, for crying out loud. Uh, we were lucky to have a paper. Yeah, it was. It wasn't until much later that they started putting out the collections of his reviews, and I have to say, I purchased a number of them and found it very interesting to read what he had to say about movies that I had already known for 15 or 20 yeah, years. I, by, uh, I bought Leonard Maltin. That was the first one of those books I ever bought. I bought Leonard Maltin's in a Kroger on sale, and I got home, and that's when I found out Blade Runner was bad. I didn't know <laughs> until... I, I didn't know until yeah, you just told I, me. I bought Leonard Maltin's <laughs> one and a half stars for Blade Runner. I didn't realize it sucked. I've been liking it all this time. I'm sorry, I'm that was Leonard Moulton's book where it was like a paragraph about yeah, each movie. Yeah, yeah I, I, I remember certain movies, and it's not that I even disagree with him, but I remember certain movies where he seemed to go against the grain of what the popular conception was. Uh, and, I mean, I know I, I'm digressing here, but uh, I've always, I, I love James Bond movies. If people listen to this show, they know that because we've reviewed almost every one of them and we're working our way through them. But uh, I, I'm a fan of Diamonds Are Forever, which is not the most popular one. A lot of people think that's where uh, Sean Connery, you know, just it went too far. It was too silly, whatever. But I just remember Leonard Moulton gave it four stars. And I was like, yeah, good, Leonard. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. So whatever the case may be. Uh, so what did you think of the choice of opening the movie with a, you know, like 1920s movie musical type number? Uh, it's very indulgent. But again, it works, especially with the tune that I mean. What did what did we use? What it was our opening number? Anything, Anything goes. goes. And uh, I think it was good to set the tone for this thing. I mean, it opens in a nightclub, so why not open with a giant nightclub number? You're another again homage to the movies of yesteryear, which it clearly was. I mean, you know, the, the stage defies physics. I mean, this, <laughs> there's a point at which they go into a big part of the stage that is massive, that is larger than the club. And that the people in the club wouldn't be able to see, even even if it were actually able to fit into the club. So, I mean, clearly we're talking about uh, something that is just more of a fantasy thing anyway. Uh, but I thought it was a great and The dancers defy common it's, sense because they come out dancing during the gunshots. Yes, they do. It's like, yes. really? Really? You're going to come on dancing? dance now? It's their job. And, you know, they're, look, it's a nightclub owned by a Chinese mobster. They probably get gunshots all the time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> You know, I particularly liked, and, and I don't, I can't speak for people who are much younger than us, but I would think anybody from our age group on, you know, older than us 
would know the song, would recognize the song when they heard it. So the fact that they had it in, I guess, in Chinese, mm-hmm. uh, made it just even more fun mm-hmm. for me in its own way. Because it just, you know, to hear her singing it in, in a foreign language that I don't know a word <laughs> of, uh, but to know everything she's saying mm-hmm. pretty much, I, I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. And and I thought the, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big song and dance no. man. Uh, I, I don't know too many people who are, quite frankly, but... I got a kick out of it, and I thought it was kind of a fun way to open it the movie. Is. And you know, the things that you talk about with with uh, there's some light flourishes of of kind of Asian flavored music mixed into that version of the of the song. You know, the scoring for it, and of course, as you say, it's sung in Chinese. So what you have is this big song and dance routine, and you don't really know why all that's there. You know that anything goes is obviously uh, kind of emblematic of what the movie's going to be, and it's kind of setting the stage for get ready. You know, fasten your seatbelts because anything goes here. But also, it's giving you a, a little invitation in the movie to go, hey, what is this? Why is this like this? Why are we doing this? Who is this woman? Why is she dressed this way? Why are we hearing this in Chinese? What, you know, because none of that we know at first. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to kind of go off, off on that a little bit when you talk about in the score, having kind of flourishes of it, uh, I I'm not the big score oh. guy that you or Scott Gardner are and other people are, but I was particularly listening to it a little bit last night as I watched the movie, and I thought Williams did an incredible job with this, with the, with just throwing in little things like that and and had little tones, you know, when they're in India that that kind of played to the to the scene, without overdoing mm-hmm. it. I think it would be real easy for a for a lesser hand to be less subtle and to to bang you over the head with it, but I just thought I thought this score was fantastic. You know, I feel like the golden age of John Williams really begins in 1975. I think you would agree. Um, of the popular popularity, yeah, but I just have to... One of my favorite John Williams scores is The Cowboys, which I think was 1972. Yeah, Cowboys, yeah. It's, and I've, you know, it's funny. They did an album of that some years ago, but it wasn't the original album. It was somebody else recording that. So I haven't heard the original score score for that. Um, but I feel like though there's an era of Williams, and and we'll we'll set Cowboys to the side for now. Uh, that you start with Jaws, and you start going through the chain, and you go Jaws to Star Wars in '77, the Close Encounters in '77, to you know, I mean, there's some stuff Superman yeah, to Superman in '78, <laughs> to Empire Strikes Back, to Raiders of the Lost Ark, to E.T to Return of the Jedi, to Temple of Doom. And I don't really know where that golden era stops, but maybe... I, I, I think it continued as far as Jurassic Park. I think Park Jurassic even. Park is an all-timer. I don't know if it's part of that era or if he had like a little break and then that's you know some other era. I haven't really defined the, the eras of John Williams too clearly, but I can tell you that this is right in the middle of that, or right, you know, in, definitely part of that biggest golden era that he ever had uh it's a great score it's a great score top to bottom um and it's yeah it's one of those that for a long time was hard to find and i uh, actually as a college uh, as a freshman or sophomore sophomore probably uh, i went on a quest to find it on cd because it just you just couldn't find it and i wound up finding it in a cutout bin at a little shop for 6.99 um and, you know, that was like the rare thing. And then when eBay, eBay came around some years later, I'd go, hey, look at that. That's selling for $150. I've got that, and I'm not selling it. And then, of course, uh, when Crystal Skull came out, they, they dumped all of them back into the 
gen pop, as it were, and uh, you can get mm-hmm. it all the time now. But but again, I don't. That's a good thing because uh, it is a great great score. Uh, See, score. I, I wonder, and maybe you know, you have a better feel for this mm-hmm. than I do. I don't know. Uh, again, I'm not the score guy that you guys are. I don't listen as closely as you guys, but I do know what I yeah. like. Uh, there are movies that he did scores for in between, say, uh, 85 and when, what, I don't even know what year uh, Jurassic Park came out. 93, 92? yeah. 93? Okay, so in in that eight-year span, he, he did some, he did a number of scores mm-hmm. for movies that were not as recognizable for their theme mm-hmm. songs. And without listening to them closely, I don't know if they fit in that golden age or not movies like like always yeah uh, always nice. i couldn't tell you i couldn't if you played that score for, score for me right now i wouldn't be able to tell you what no, movie it was from without you yeah. telling me and that's and, and last crusade was the same year as always because Spielberg kind of works in these bursts uh last crusade was summer and always was was fall christmas um and, and that's kind of yeah why I, I don't really put i kind of separate Jurassic park as a different kind of era for him uh a great era but, you know, Empire of the Sun is a score that I love, but I don't know that it's particularly memorable for a lot of people. They don't they don't go, oh, yeah, you're whistling it on the street. And they go, hey, Empire of the Sun. Great. Um, <laughs> if you t- no. You know, if you do that for Superman and then, yeah, absolutely. They know what it is. The Raiders March. They know. But, uh, you know, there are they're good scores, but the, I don't know that they're, you know, the top, the cream of the crop. And then, of course, you get 1993. We got Jurassic and then Schindler's List right after that. Uh, which is just a massive, powerful one-two punch from him. Mm. Yeah, and and it's 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 hard to judge because the movies were just less popular or less, you know. And I don't want to say a movie like Schindler's List was less popular, but less lent itself less to rewatching. Uh, so the the score wouldn't burn itself into your mind the same way. Plus, it didn't have the, you know, the bombastic theme song because it's not, you know, it's yeah. just not the type of movie that you would do well, that for. Half, half uh, sound, uh, soundtrack album is, is, you know, like a Jimmy Buffett song and a something. You know, there's a bunch of poppy songs on there too. Uh, so you get a little bit of orchestral score and then a lot of that stuff that's on the jukebox in the background type stuff. And you're talking always. Yeah, yeah, talking always. Yeah, because because we went over to Schindler's List yeah. and I don't remember Jimmy, Jimmy Buffett well, Jimmy being Buffett in there was at all. Going to score Schindler's List, but uh, you know, part of it that was when uh, the little girl in the red coat actually had a, a Hawaiian print shirt on, and that just didn't work. <laughs> so yeah, they got rid of that part. So uh, just moving on with the movie a little bit because I do think we're digressing. Uh, so now, right in the in the first scene, there's so much that goes on in this first scene. I just think it's put together so yes. well and when you and when you hear us on back to the bins i'm gonna have a real problem with how they adapted that scene but go ahead <laughs> so you know part part of my fun with it is knowing that there's a history of indiana jones that we don't mm-hmm. know about and i don't even want to no. know about and and i'm going to contradict that in a moment but like wohan is an old friend we've been on many adventures yeah. together i go first mm-hmm. indy that whole thing I don't need to know their background. I don't want to know their background. Just knowing that they have this is enough. 
and and it just creates a, a, a you know a rich tapestry uh, to to Indiana's history that again we don't need to know about. Now I don't know if they ever. Uh, gave us more in any of the novelizations or if, if they gave us more in uh, you know the young Indiana Jones Chronicles which I can't say I've been uh, I, I can't say I've watched all that many of them honestly uh, so I don't know if there is a history out there that's been presented but my whole point is I don't yeah. need it and I, I don't know that there has been to tell you the truth I mean, one of the things that you know they did a novel series in the late 80s early 90s and one of the things I expected, because a lot of it co- covered his college years, and I kept thinking, oh, good, he's going to Professor Ravenwood and Marion and all that. None of those guys really ever showed up. There was almost no tie to the films at all uh, in any of that stuff, and I, there weren't really any ties to the films in the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. It just uh, uh, A lot of that stuff is just kind of sitting out there left unexplored. And I'm kind of like you. I, I, On the one hand, if somebody tells a good story and... You know, it makes sense and it's entertaining and engaging. That's great. But I am just as happy to have what we have come to call over the years your own headcanon about these these things as well. Um, sometimes yeah. what you have in your head is better for you than what they make up anyway when they put some story out about it. So now I'm going to totally contradict okay. that. I'm going to do a 180 on you. And I want to talk about Short Round in a moment and his... Uh, the criticism of him. Uh, but before I get to that, I really do feel like I want to know what happened to him in between this movie and Raiders, because he, at this point, is really Indy's surrogate mm. son. And I don't, un, un, unlike uh, Kate Capshaw, I do want to know that he made it out mm-hmm. okay and that, you know, that, that he, he's living a good life somewhere, you know, maybe found you know an aunt and uncle that adopted him or took him in or something like i feel like their relationship is too strong for it to just be like oh yeah yeah that's maybe henry took him that would be fine and if they even had like a throwaway line somewhere uh to say Mm. that yeah it would be okay with funny about short round is they don't even like in you know i know you didn't want to mention crystal skull but in Crystal Skull, they they kind of pay tribute to Henry and to Marcus, and they don't really ever talk about Short Round in any of this stuff. Not at it all. Just kind of not at all. It doesn't I, exist anymore. And and that's that's disappointing yeah. to me because I do find him to be a I found him to be a fun character, which is probably going against a lot of people because mm-hmm. and now I'm going to get to the criticism. I think a lot of people don't like the stereotype that he presented, uh, and and I I think. Yeah, there is a stereotype element, but it's fitting with the serials of yes. the, the era of when this can yes. you know, when what this that this is paying tribute to. I don't think it's meant to offend anybody, and I don't think it should offend anybody. I certainly hope it shouldn't, uh, but I I do hear that as a criticism. It seems like you know, uh, Kihai Kwan, I guess it's now Jonathan Kihai uh he was in that Everything Everywhere All at Once movie. And uh, that did so well uh, this this year, and um, yeah, that's on my that's in my to watch queue. People love so. that movie, and um, you know, somebody in one of the interviews asked him if he would be interested in going back and revisiting Short Round, and I think he said, he, "Yeah, he'd love to." So obviously, he didn't have a problem with it, uh, and I feel like you know, if he didn't have a problem with it, you shouldn't have a problem with it, uh, you know, as far as uh, stereotypes and all that stuff go. But as far as just the character goes. I, People like to get annoyed by the kid's sidekick. 
people like to get annoyed by the cute kid in things, and I guess they feel like it's, I don't know, manipulative. But, but again, it's the type of character that would have been in one of these movies back in the day. And I also mm-hmm. think Raiders was, the original Raiders, we don't really think about this now, but when you talk about Dark, I remember being 10 years old going to see Raiders for the first time, and at the end, uh, two guys melt and one guy explodes. <laughs> it's fairly graphic. And uh, that's, you know, for these movies you go to and you say, oh, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, I'm going to go see these. And then the guys melt and explode and the guy gets a thing burned into his hand. And it, there is a certain level of violence and, and uh, gore associated with that first film. And I feel like short round, maybe one of those responses say, we know that we have a lot of uh, things that are maybe a little questionable for the little kids, but we do kind of need a. Uh, maybe we have this include this kid who's kind of a portal for the kids to relate to to get into this film uh, rather than all of the adult material because this went a little step above the first film in in its kind of gore and adult material. And and I think to some extent there's a kind of a presentation here where where we had kind of Marion as his sidekick in the first mm-hmm. movie. You know, I I don't think that. Kate Capshaw presents that same dynamic. Yeah. And I think, you know, it created a vacuum that short round fills. Yeah. Well, you know, Will, Willie Scott doesn't, doesn't serve that purpose. But, you know, you go back to what you said earlier about Marion and who, you know, who is in essence kind of his equal in a lot of ways, short round is kind of his equal. Uh, you know, when you see him playing cards he catches some cheating cards and they're, they're you know, they're kind of, <laughs> you cheat very yeah, big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that Absolutely. scene. Absolutely. And, you know, who is the one that has to save them when they're getting out of the nightclub? Short round. Has to and, he save, and he saves them when, when when Willie's trying to hold him back. Yeah. You know, no, you stay. He could take care of himself. No, I have to save him. And he does have yeah. to save him. And and he does save him. He, he isn't able to take that guy out, but he's able to distract mm-hmm. him long enough so that Indy can be, you know, not killed. Yeah. So, no, I think, and I think he's great in the, in the Pancot Palace scenes where they're having the dinner and everything. And just, I, 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 Look, again, I love so much about this movie. Um, and and I've never understood. He, to me, is kind of the Ewoks of Indiana Jones, where there's a lot of criticism of it for, to me, very little reason. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, like I said, even if, if they're trying to criticize him based on the stereotype, I don't think we're ever laughing at him. Mm. I think we're laughing with him. And I think that's a very, very big distinction. And if you want to go to a stereotype that's bad... Do it when you're laughing at someone's stereotype. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I will be honest with you, I quote him more frequently to my wife than probably any other character. And I just I just find myself saying, "You call him Doctor Jones." See, that's that's no, the one I use all the time. I, anytime my wife does something, I tell her not to do something, and she'll do it, and it'll blow up in her face. And I always tell her, "You listen to me more, you live longer." So, <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna say you told me stand against the wall all i did was stand against the wall <laughs> that scene i love that, that because that seems so real anybody who yes. has kids knows they're gonna look to to get the blame off yes. of them as quickly as they possibly can and that's what yes. he does and and he did tell him to stand against the wall um yeah oh yeah he's, he yeah. was right but that's besides I the point love, i love that scene. oh good grief we could go through this movie scene by scene and just just I love that scene. I love, again, you talk about the cliffhanger aspect of it. That is one of those great cliffhanger moments where they're in the 
in the chamber. First off, they go for their gross-out scene with the bugs, which is the snake scene of this movie. Um, they get into that old chamber. The spikes are coming down. The roof's coming down. And again, dark, yes, but funny. It's the same as the trash compactor. There's nothing wrong with it. No, but it's, to me, it's funnier. It's no darker than that. I, still, I just love, you know, you feel inside. And then all of a sudden the fist <laughs> comes out. Do it now. <laughs> <laughs> to your right. Yeah. To your right. Oh, your other right. But, uh, you know, just the fact yeah. of what is he going to be able to do with that fist when he waves it at her? I mean, if she doesn't do it, mm. he can't really use the fist. <laughs> well, and then, you know, I mean. I think this, and I don't know that I'm getting agreement from people on this, but I actually think this might be the best performance in an, in a Raiders movie by Harrison Ford. I think the way he presents himself, he doesn't go over the top. A lot of times when he's talking, especially when he's giving you the exposition, he does it so quietly and moderated that it makes the intensity build. And just little things he does, like when he rolls his eyes when he's when Marion starts you know like not marrying excuse me willie thinks he she's coming he's coming for her and and he's not he's looking for who's in her room and like she's i'm right here and you just see him like roll his eyes and move on and the little things like that i just think his performance was much less over the top than what we see in some of the other movies and i think harrison ford first of all is a great actor period uh and I think he does a great job in all of them, but I think this may be the best one as far as I'm interesting, concerned. Interesting. I think a lot of people would, would give him uh, Last Crusade, the interaction with uh, with Henry. Um, but I, I can see your point on this. Uh, yeah, he, he sells things in a more subtle way at times in this one than he, you know, the, when uh, Chatterlaw is, uh, again, it's one of those jokes that you don't get if you're a little tiny kid, but the, the adults get it where he's he, uh Chatter Law saying, you know, wasn't the Sultan of Madagascar threatened to cut off your head if you entered this country again? No, it wasn't my head. Your hands, perhaps. No, it wasn't my hands. It was my, uh, and he kind of looks down. <laughs> I misunderstand. <laughs> yeah, no, that there's, yeah. I mean, even even just things, you know, like when he, when he the, the seriousness, the sternness, which just made me feel like, uh, like my father was back talking to me <laughs> when he says, uh, was it, you're insulting them yeah. and you're, and you're uh, embarrassing me. Yeah. Like, I felt like a five-year-old with my father yelling yeah. at me. <laughs> right then. I, there's just little things like that that are just, to me, so well done and so earnest in the way he presented them that, like I said, I, I certainly, I would, I think it's open to discussion. I'm not saying hands down it's the best performance, but I think you can make the argument that this is the best performance yeah. in, in any of these four yeah. movies. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the one thing people don't give Harrison Ford enough credit for is that the man has genuine chops. He's not just a guy who has a bullwhip or he shoots a blaster or he pilots a spaceship or whatever. The, the guy has legitimate acting chops. And uh, I, I think sometimes that gets lost in the mix with movie hero, which is a different job than actor sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he had to go out there and, and expand his uh, horizons a little and show us in other movies how he could do mm -hmm. it. And, and then people started to accept well, him. And you remember, for this is just a year before Witness. Right. I was just trying. I was actually just trying in my mind to figure out where Witness came in relation to this because I, I think Witness is a, is a great movie and I think his performance in yeah. it is really that, top notch. That was his Oscar nomination was Witness, and then he you know he tried it again two years later with Mosquito Coast. It didn't do so well, but that's you know that's a, a different story. The point is the guy clearly has real chops, and uh, well he 
he's one of the actors, and I don't know that everybody's agreeing with me on this either, but he's one of the actors where I've seen him in bad movies, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure I could point to one of them and say, oh, he didn't act well in this. And I've heard people say, oh, oh in you know, Return of the Jedi, he walked through oh. it. Uh, I don't agree. Uh. I, I, I but but I've heard that that criticism, and I I don't I don't agree with it. I think he's a guy who I don't think I've seen what I would term a bad performance out of him. Morning Glory. <laughs> well, you know what? I haven't seen Morning Glory, so therefore I can still say what I said and mean but, it. But in that era, I will agree with you. Uh, and stuff. I mean, I saw Six Days, Seven Nights, and he didn't suck in no, it. The movie, the movie sucked. did suck. Uh, and Hanover Street is not a great great movie, but he's really good in it. Um. And, and and same for uh you know he's he's acting his butt off in uh what's the what's that stupid movie uh oh what's the J.J. Abrams movie Mike Nichols movie where he he's going for an Oscar again and he gets shot in the head frantic no 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 oh no no you're regarding, yeah, Henry. regarding Henry that's right yeah and, oh that's definitely the Oscar play yeah oh 100 percent and uh, the unfortunate thing is when it's that obvious then they don't go for it and that one was pretty obvious. Yeah. I was like, could you write something for me that's like my left yeah. foot? Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, that, that one didn't do it for me. Now, uh, I've always said, like, with Easter eggs, I like them when they're there if you see them, but if you don't know about them, it's not going to affect your enjoyment in any way, shape, or form. So in that regard, the two things that kind of came up at this point in the movie that I made notes on were Club Obi-Wan mm -hmm. and the fact that Dan Aykroyd played the guy who puts them on the plane. Yeah. Those are two things, like, if, if you're aware of it and you say, oh, wait a minute, that's Dan Aykroyd. Oh, and Steven Spielberg directed him in, well, no, he didn't direct him in the Blues Brothers, actually. No, I'm, but he's in the Blues he Brothers. Directed, he directed, yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. And I'm trying to think, uh, did did Aykroyd make an appearance in 1941? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Aykroyd, Belushi, John Candy. Uh, yeah, Aykroyd is one of the main guys in, in, uh, in that, one of the Army guys. Okay, and I haven't seen that movie in 40 years, and, so you have to And you want to talk about a great score that people don't really tend to remember? That John Williams score is so, amazing. Yeah, and that's because the movie wasn't a hit, so people just forget yeah, about it. That's a shame. So now, when they get into this cargo plane... Yes. This is, this is something like which, I, I, I never thought about. In all the times I've seen this movie, I've never thought about which, this Before once. you go started with that, I want to also point out that, that Dan Aykroyd is R. Weber... He's Dan Aykroyd, but he's pretty much playing John Cleese. Yeah, oh, his yeah, delivery oh, is a hundred percent John Cleese. Yeah, you know what? That's that is true. Uh, he, he's he's coming right off the set of Saturday yeah. Night Live with that performance, obviously, oh, yeah. and and that's fine. That is not meant as a criticism. Yeah. Uh, but they, you know, we get on the plane and then we have our traditional uh, map showing us where they're going across. That cargo plane seemed to fly an awful long distance without them realizing what was going on. I'm not sure a plane in that era could fly that distance without stopping to be refueled. They, they might have stopped a few times. It doesn't It doesn't denote that it didn't stop, so I'm going to say maybe it did, but I don't know. Now, one of the things, I'm just, again, I'm just looking at my notes as we're talking Good. here, uh, but one of the things that, my, my favorite movie of all time is The Godfather. Mm. When I watch The Godfather, I cannot watch it without seeing clearly that Sonny misses a punch by a mile and <laughs> Carlos's head goes running back. You know that you know exactly what yeah. I'm talking about, right? In this movie, I cannot 
watch it without seeing that after they jump off the plane, it crashes into the mountain and disappears with with no wreckage before we cut away from the scene. Uh, I was thinking there was a wing here and there. Was there not? Uh, there, there was a slight yeah. little thing, but it was not the plane. No, there's <laughs> clearly blue screen action. Uh, there and right afterwards when they come out in the uh, they start going downhill in the uh, in the raft that's an oh yeah that's that's an era too though that you have to remember when they were doing blue screen stuff back then on daylight things and white things like they're doing uh, it was very hard to do that those were very hard effects there used to be a game show of some sort back in the I think it was in the mid 70s and they would actually have the contestants recreate a scene from a movie uh, and I don't even remember how you won the game show or what you did but I just remembered like for whatever reason I have a clear memory of seeing it where they recreated the scene from the African Queen with them coming in the boat in, in the rapids and that's what when they're coming on, when they're coming with the rift that's what I see in my mind uh, it, it you know it, it's just too it's not too much because it's to me it's as fun as can be, mm. but it's like you know one thing into another thing into another thing into another thing and and that's the way that scene plays and you know they they go from the rapids and then all of a sudden it's like oh it's a million degrees and we're in the sun uh, and the, and the water isn't moving at all, <laughs> but then you you pull up to uh, I forget what the character's name is the the uh, older Indian gentleman ah. uh, and and it's another scene where like right there is where you cut for next week's cereal. Mm. I can go there. And you have her gasp, and then. Uh... But, and, and another thing, uh, though that another like I can't watch this movie without hearing it so clearly in my mind is, I hate the water and I hate this and I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> that is like the worst overdub I've ever heard. But, but what I what I do like about that moment though, is, and, and to me it's the difference between a Spielberg movie and a James Cameron movie. Which is she does that I hate the water and I hate being wet and I hate you and his response is good and that's it he doesn't have the coolest quickest hippest comeback line you know like you do in a lot of these movies you just that's the best he can do well and that's and that's absolutely true to form yeah. he's great thinking on his feet but he's not going to win a uh, no, debate it's not a war of the worlds here he's going to uh, war of the words here he's going to win he's just uh, this is all I got. Good. I don't even care. But but what my, my point is just the, the dubbing of yeah. the word you. Uh, just it's like every time I hear it, it's like you couldn't do that smoother. It's just it jumps out at me every time. I'll just time. say this: the, any dubbing in this film far 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 exceeds the dubbing in the uh, original crew Star Trek films to a person. So that's what I'll say. No, there's 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 some reality there. Uh, I can't, you know. I'd like to debate it, but uh, I, I would lose much like India. I'm going I'm to I'm just respond with good. good. <laughs> so then we we have the uh, gross out food scene, uh, followed shortly after that by the gross out bug scene, and I think that's one of the things that everybody's so bothered by in this movie. And I don't, I really don't get the criticism. <laughs> it's supposed to get you. It's supposed to get you to sit there and say, ew, yeah. and that's what you do. Yeah. And to me, is that so bad? No, the bug scene to me is the snake scene from the first film. You know, you're just sitting there. It it again is one of those things that it says, okay, here's a phobia that a lot of people have, and now we're going to stick you right in the middle of it, and you can't get out of it. Same thing with the snake scene in the first film. 
Um, and one of the one of the things I think that's so effective about the uh, the food grossing you out, and and it does it's it's almost you know it's played for comedy to a oh, large yeah. extent. She goes into the soup and there's all the eyeballs, and then the oh chilled monkey yes. brains. Uh, but but it's it serves its purpose by going on just long enough that when he comes into her room with a basket full of with bread and things, it looks like the best food ever in the history of the yes, world. Yes, because it's normal. Yes, and and but it's. It's like just enough that you're sitting there saying, "Ooh, I wish I had that." <laughs> so then I have uh, in my notes, I have sexual tension question mark, because I didn't really feel the tension, especially the scene, uh, you know, where they're sitting there waiting for each other, and yeah. and it, it's it didn't ring true to me. But I think it's an effort to recreate what we saw in you know, it happened one night and movies like that of, of you know an earlier era. It is. I like it though. I mean, I, I like the scene. I like the interplay. I like the uh, the kind of the parallelism. Um, I particularly love when uh, he's attacked by the uh, the thuggy guard in his room and he's you know he's being choked and he's reaching out with his hand and she comes out and says you know this is. This is the night I slipped through your fingers, and he's literally got his fingers out there trying to, trying to mm. get help from somebody somehow. Uh, I, I I enjoyed that. I like the little interplay. I like the score for that again. I think this, it's a good Williams. Uh, I think Williams Williams does a lot of holding movies together sometimes, uh, and, and that to me that scene in particular is one that he just he does a really good job of making that work for me. No, I, I agree, and it, it does. You know, I'm I'm giving you like my criticisms a little bit, and it my fear always with these movies is that somebody hears that and thinks, oh, Paul didn't like this yeah. movie, and and that's not the case at all. I I, I love this movie yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, and I'm just pointing out, you know, like as as I'm watching it last night, I'm taking notes, trying to put a critical eye on things, so that's that's where I go. Um, we you know we get into the point where we where they see the sacrifice. And it was very reminiscent to me of two things, one which was clearly an inspiration for this and the other uh, which this clearly inspired in my mind. Uh, the first being Gunga Din, mm. that clearly they, they had a love for that movie. And I, you know, I'm on board for that. I love that movie. Uh, and I think that they're playing with the atmosphere there. And it's just it just looks like a, a modern take on a lot of things we mm. saw in Gunga Din. Uh, and. You know that's that's a, a a great way to to pay homage to it without making a remake of yeah. it. Uh, and then uh, what was uh, I guess a year later we got Young Sherlock Holmes, which has very similar scenes in it. And that's a movie that uh, I recently covered with uh, Darren and Ruth Sutherland. I don't I assume that will appear on the feed before this. And uh, uh, and I made mention of it in that that it was reminiscent and of it's this. Produced by whom? Uh, there's a guy. This guy Spielberg. Yeah. yeah exactly. You had similar minds in there. You, you know what else I like about that that sacrifice scene and the, the whole Temple of Doom, which I guess is what that is. Uh, it is. It looks great. It looks big. It looks expansive. But it also just clearly looks like a set. And I think that's by design too. Again, a throwback to those old movies where you know we're letting you know this is kind of the wink and the nod that you get is that it's clearly a set. We know it's a set. You know it's a set. I'm wondering if it's the same set that we got in Young Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. I, that I don't know. That's a, it's a fair question. I, I, I don't either, but I think quite possibly it could hmm. be. So you know, and he, he is just you know my, my mind going to silly places. But uh, 
ever since I first saw this and another one of the things that I just jump out at me every time I see it, uh, Mulderam. Mm-hmm. Every time I see him, he looks like an evil Jim Backus. <laughs> I don't know why. I can't give you a legitimate explanation for it. Just something about his eyes, I, that he looks like Jim Backus to me. Wow. You know, I try to be supportive of you, Paul. I don't know if I can do <laughs> this. If at some point, if at some point he had like reached for Indiana's heart and gone, oh, Indiana, you've done it again, or something like that, it, w- it would have made it for me. Now, I, I got the feeling the whole voodoo scene kind of started bringing me into uh, uh, Baron Samdi from uh, Haitian mm. lore, uh, which is in Live and Let Die, the James Bond yeah. movie, that, that they have that character. But that's that's actually, I don't want to say historical, but it is a it is part of Haitian lore. It's not something that they made up for the James Bond movie. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it feels very, very similar to it. And then that kind of gets brought back with the, uh, when, when they have the, the fetish of Indiana and they're putting the, the, the pin into it, that that's, that all seems like, you know, Hindu, uh, Haitian voodoo that we're getting. And I believe it is tied into, uh, you know, true Indian lore, uh, and and I started to look up uh, Shivalinga, and you know there is a history there. This isn't something that they just made up, because yeah. we have you know we have Raiders of the Lost Ark where they talk about the Ark of the Covenant, which is you know a, a, a religious thing. Then we have the uh, you know the, the the chalice that Jesus used, which is also a religious thing. This is a religious thing too, but I think most people probably wouldn't realize it because most of us aren't educated in that particular religion yeah it's scary when you go back and you start reading through this and you go gosh they they didn't pull this out of whole cloth they didn't just pull this out of their rears this is this is a real thing uh or at least you know real enough uh yeah maybe based on something that's uh maybe made it a little darker than it really is but like the thuggies exist or did um so yeah and that's that's a big thing in gunga din yeah so i mean it's 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 legit now the, the interesting thing is that the kind of voodoo mysticism that's in the movie really that you know if i were going to issue some criticisms of the film and i've been pretty nice to it so far uh unlike you but uh, <laughs> uh did i mention i love no, this movie no i hadn't heard that i thought you hated it but um one of the things is i I've, I've always felt like that that kind of came out of nowhere in the film where it just kind of shows up all of a sudden oh by the way we've got this puppet and we're stabbing it and um in the comic adaptation, which we'll be covering on Back to the Bins, they actually do have some setup for it, which makes me wonder if that wasn't something that was originally in the script. But uh, one thing Spielberg generally does is he, he plays tight with his movies, and there's not a lot of excess in there. They move from moment to moment and point to point, and it, it may well be that, that that was originally written in, but it just wasn't seen as necessary to leave it in. That's my suspicion as well. Uh, you know, the movie's 118 minutes, and it does not have a lot of fat mm-hmm. on it. I mean, and that's that's the whole idea with this this franchise yeah. is to not have a lot of fat. You you want to feel like you're going from one adventure to another, and you want to have it in the, especially in this one, in kind of those little compartmentalized installments that you can kind of put together as a serial. Yeah. Uh, so if you start adding in too much exposition or if you make the exposition too long, it's really going to just kind of make the movie feel like it's longer than it is. Uh, as it is because they eliminate that, it actually feels shorter than it is, which is you know, always a plus. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think the fact that 
when I first saw it, I thought it was them creating it out of whole cloth. That's one thing. But then when I found out that that's not the case and that this is based on, you know, real legends and real lore, uh, that makes me more forgiving of them not giving us the background. Oh, yeah. So in this instance, you're going to be harsher than me. Yeah. Well, so there. <laughs> well, and I think, yeah, I think probably the presumption was, look, they're swallowing all the rest of this stuff. Do we really need to give them a reason for this? We'll just put it in there and and they'll be fine with it. And uh, well, that, that right kind of goes to Spielberg. Kind of goes to Spielberg's thought process with Jaws, uh, when they, you know, apparently Peter Benchley did not like the uh, ultimate conclusion of the shooting the uh, air tank in in the Jaws in the shark's mouth, and Steven Spielberg's take on at least this is the way i heard the story if i'm wrong forgive me but uh steven spielberg basically said something like if i've gotten them to come along with me this far they'll go with me to the end <laughs> and i think that's kind of what we're looking yeah, at here too i think you're right and it does enter kind of late into the film so yeah at that point if you're on board you're on board doesn't matter i found myself questioning which is not something i really hadn't done too much in the past but questioning the actual state of mind of the people who are entranced uh you know the the indiana gets entranced in this thing but he still shows some independent will he wipes the spit off his face uh you know little things that that it's not just he's he's not just a uh you know a zombie at this point so how much is his mind thinking? And then I start think from that I start thinking about well, what about all these guards? Are they actual zealot, thuggy people, or are they people who've been entranced somehow? And then are we killing people who are potentially innocent in this all of this? Uh, and it, it really just opened up a door to uh, a Pandora's box that I had to push closed because yeah. <laughs> it was just questions I couldn't answer and I didn't want to at some point. But it, but I really found myself talking, thinking about the ethics of it all and and the you know the commitment that they have to this religion at that point. Yeah, clearly in their setup for this, and again, a lot of this is in the adaptation as well. Clearly, some of these full-grown adults who are doing this evil work are people who drank the black sleep of Cali or uh, drank the blood of Cali and are in, in the black sleep of Cali. Um, but I would have to think some of them are just true believers. Uh, yeah, I, I would think some are, but, but I, yeah. I have no way of distinguishing no. which ones. No. And then I started thinking about the, the guy who's like the prime minister, and Ten then he's there, right there at their side, uh, and then he ends up basically having his chest crushed underneath that uh, that big wheel. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking, now, is that guy a true believer? Or is he somebody who was entranced and now he's paying a huge price yeah, for it? Yeah, now see, he, I think, is, I feel like he's a true believer because he's just too slick. I feel like he's... I think you have to feel like he's a true yeah. believer, otherwise you start getting <laughs> a little uncomfortable with the way the movie yeah. deals with him. But, you know, but like Pat Roach... Which I'm sure you're going to get to. You have a Pat Roach note on your phone. I, I okay. <laughs> Pat Roach is a guy who, uh, you know, he Indy goes out of his way to try and save him. So it, it may well be that that Pat Roach is not a true believer, but he was a big guy that they said, "Boy, we need this giant guy to help do our bidding," and uh, and kind of mm. got him that way. Well, my, my my note on Pat Roach was was just that he, he, it's. It's so reminiscent of the big guy from Raiders well, is, without duplicating the same yeah, scene. Yeah, he is the big guy from Raiders. 
Yeah, I, I, I know he is the same actor, but it, it almost seems like, okay, we took the same character and just put him in a new yes. thing, and it's the same, it really is the same guy, yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that, but, but, and, uh, and in fact, at the end, he winds up being a giant red smear, just like in Raiders, so, and... Yeah, it, it, very similar in, his, in its own way. He's in all of about seven seconds of Last Crusade, because they, they did film another fight between the two of them, and they cut it. I've never seen mm-hmm. I've never seen any of the cut footage from that, but I know that it happens. I know that it exists, and I know that he's in the film for again maybe seven seconds at most. Hmm, it's got to be available somewhere. You'd have to think. And then then another like Easter egg moment is if you know the lore behind Raiders of the Lost Ark and you know that he was supposed to have a whole whip scene mm-hmm. uh, in that scene when he pulls out the gun and shoots the yeah. guy. Uh, so then to have the callback to that where he goes to pull out the gun and he doesn't have the gun. Yes. And it's it's a callback, but it's also foreshadowing because this is a prequel. Yes. Uh, Although, you know, that is another one of those wink and a nod moments to the audience because if you remember, uh, in the original Raiders, as you know, he's supposed to do the, the fight scene and the whip and everything, and he was sick. He had dysentery, I guess. And uh, so he just, why don't I just shoot him? And when you watch him, he doesn't look good in that scene originally, you know, in the original Raiders. Uh, mm-hmm. And he just kind of, I, you know, I guess from an acting perspective, you're seeing him puzzled about, you know, Marion. Where's Marion? I got to find her. So he just kind of reaches down and casually shoots him. And in this one, he gets really smarmy and smug because you know that you saw him pull the pistol out on the last guy with the sword. And so there is, I mean, yes, it's it's foreshadowing to a degree, but it's really a callback because. You and I, we both know he's going to go reaching for that gun, and he knows he's going to reach for that gun because of what happened in the last film, and then all of a sudden the gun's not there. But he does it without overtly breaking the fourth wall. No. Yeah, he doesn't turn and wink to you, but he does. He gets a smirk about him, and you know what's coming, and then it doesn't come. But if if you were a 15-year-old who never saw Raiders, and somehow this is the first experience you're having, you'd still enjoy that scene, and it wouldn't... Again, the, the Easter egg aspect to it, for me, what makes it important is if you don't know about what it's calling back mm. to, it has to be done in a way where, where you're not rubbing your head and saying, well, what were they doing yeah. there? Uh, and, and if you don't know about it, you, you'd be fine. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. So that's important to me. Um, and what else do we, you know, I, I, I don't have a lot more notes. Uh, I have that the bridge scene created genuine tension despite the fact that you know, you know they're going to come out of it, okay? But you just—it's one of those ones where you start saying, "Well, how are they going to come out of this? Yeah. How how are they going to survive this?" Uh, the, you know, using the the guards as human projectiles is is you know really fascinating the way it it was presented. And and I just you know I thought it was it was a, a fitting end when he you know he has to battle Mulderon on on the falling bridge. The only negative, and this is my last negative for the movie that I'm going to give you, is just. The scene of him falling just does not look realistic, and that's a you know that's a byproduct of the special effects of that day. That's exactly what it's a hundred percent that. Um, and there's there are a lot of special effects that were executed really well in that scene because there are things that you don't even realize were happened, including at one point Indy's legs being completely painted on uh, and totally animated uh, during one of the shots uh, because uh, the way the way they had to you know they had the the different elements they had the the cliff where they're hanging off the bridge 
And then the water down below with the alligators in them is a totally inserted element. That's They're not over that water. Um, But at one point, Harrison Ford's legs kick out over where that water would be. And, of course, when they mat in the water, his legs get erased. So they literally had to draw his legs on. uh, And his legs are, are in in that shot, animated creation. Um, So there's that. If I can back up just a second, too, because to me, there is a... The, there's a marvelous set piece in this train chase. They get in the mine cars and they're uh, they're just they're going through. And you know when Spielberg puts this thing together, again from a from a filmic perspective, you've got so many different elements happening. You've got blue screen stuff happening. You've got live action stuff happening. You've got miniatures, a bunch of miniature work in there with puppets. There's a lot of times where those guys are all puppets uh, in those mine cars uh, as it's going around those tracks. And you also have. Uh, an interesting thing where they tried to, in, in choreographing that scene and shooting it, they had to figure out what is it that makes roller coasters scary. And they tried to figure out, you know, a lot of it is that you see the drop coming and you have to sit and anticipate it coming. And so that's kind of how they, they shot it literally based on how they analyzed what makes roller coasters scary. Um, well, it was absolutely reminiscent to me of, I don't even remember which amusement park I was in where they used to have the ride called the runaway train mm-hmm. uh, and and being on that and, and having it take you through that I mean it, it that's what it brought me back to mm-hmm. that feel uh, so yeah it's no question they they were successful in creating that that amusement park ride feel to it uh, and and when he puts his feet on the, the uh, wheels to try and slow yeah. it down I, I it's like I have to cringe a little bit and I feel my feet burning <laughs> I love it. And then, of course, that leads to a really bad pun again, which is very silly. And uh, why it took me years to understand that this was a dark movie. <laughs> it's, I still don't know. <laughs> I, still, I, I, guess, I guess what I don't know is why is it being a dark movie so bad? No. It, it, Especially when it could be a dark movie and fun. Yes, exactly what I was about to say. Why can't we have both? I feel like Empire Strikes Back is both. I think Empire Strikes Back may be the funniest of the original trilogy, but yet it's dark. I think this one has got a lot of funny to it, uh, but again, there's the dark. Um, the the other thing I'll say on the on the bridge scene is we used to, I remember thinking this as a teenager watching this movie again. We'd study in English class or literature class, you know, what is the climax of a story? What is the what is that high point of the story that is just absolutely this is this is that that level where the story gets to the highest point that it's going to get and then you know everything's downhill from there and I feel like the moment in this movie is everything they've been through everything they've done and now they're out on this bridge and again everything that Indiana Jones has faced without a complaint without a problem without an issue and now he's on this bridge. The kid's on the bridge. They're surrounded. There's really no other way out. And he just looks and goes, oh, shit. <laughs> at, at no other point has he responded this way. And this is it. Uh, yeah. You know, this is the one. That, oh, that, that's a, that's yeah. a really good point. They're coming right yeah. out and telling you this is yeah. it. <laughs> this is the one that has finally broken him. <laughs> this is the one where he just does not see anything else happening. And then, of course, uh he makes something happen, and uh, fortunately, the Brits show up. And you know, in this day and age, I don't know that the movie could be made with the, the the British occupiers of India being the good guys. Yeah, well, it's 
that's an argument for another day that I don't even <laughs> want to get into right now. But uh, I, I'm fine with it, yeah. and we'll just leave it alone. All right. uh, and then one of the things I like is that with the ultimate resolution, when they go back to the town and it's prospering now. So you got to figure some time. You know, more time has passed than it felt yeah. like. Uh, but you're left with the question of, well, is it because he brought the stone back? Or is it just happenstance because they freed all that water that brought water to the valley, which brought life back to the valley, and then that's you know that's what happened, and it's just you know a coincidence. Wow, I didn't even think and about you, that. And there is no answer to there is no answer to that question really. No, uh, other than and it's one of the things I do. You know, if you want criticism of the film from me, here it is. Um, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones is a stone cold cynic who doesn't believe in bedtime stories. Um, at the end of this one. You know, he says, oh, now you see the magic of the rock. And he says, yes, I understand its power now. And in one year, he forgot all this stuff? Or was he just humoring the guy and didn't really see I don't it for what it was because of the water? I don't know. I felt it when he said it. I don't know. And it may be it may be because of the water. I don't know. But uh, I felt like he had – I mean, he saw the thing erupt into flames. You know, he saw this. Yeah. He saw a heart being ripped out of a chest. Clearly, that's not a bedtime story. And the guy not dying. Yeah, the guy not dying when his heart is ripped out of his chest, and then it erupts in and his chest and closing itself up yeah. again. Yeah, I mean it's, yeah. it's it's it's. I mean, each one of these movies has some sort of supernatural event that yeah. it that happens in it that cannot be explained by our, our knowledge of science. Yes, and then for him to a year later go, ah, I don't believe in these ghost stories. They're just bedtime stories. Who needs it? He kind of go, wait a minute. It was just a year ago, dude. What happened? <laughs> Was it just a year? I thought it was like a couple nope, of years. 35, 36. Okay. 35, 36, and 38. Raiders is 35. Temple of Doom is 30. Excuse me. Raiders is 36. Temple of Doom is 35. Last Crusade is 38. Okay. I bow to your, your superior chronological knowledge. <laughs> okay. So that, that pretty much exhausts my notes on the movie. Uh, is there anything else about it that you would want to bring up before we start getting into our ratings? Uh. I don't know that Harrison Ford has ever before or since been that buff. I mean, and yet he had back surgery while it went oh, on. Did, while it went, see, I didn't realize that. I, I, this, I'm trying to remember. It was in the production notes. Because uh, he is just he is just cut. It's almost like he went. You know, I know I've got a lot of uh, uh, I got a lot of uh, a lot of shirtless scenes here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking for this. I, I can't find it. And in, 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 you know, I'm trying to do it quick without making yeah. everybody sit and wait. Uh, but whatever the case may be, he he had a back issue, and they had to film a lot of the scenes using his double. You know, the the the, the long shots and different things like that that they could get away with while he was recovering from the surgery. Mm, that's a tough surgery too. I can't find it now. So we're gonna just assume. That I'm right, okay. and we're going to move forward from there. Uh, and if I'm wrong, somebody could email me and tell me, Thank but you. I don't believe I am wrong. Uh, I definitely saw that in the notes. So if, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong because I believed somebody I shouldn't have. Or shame. Yes. Well, you know, have you ever seen anything on Wikipedia that was false? Never. I, I, I can't say that I have. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to come right out and tell you this is the this is atypical. It is not what I expect. There are other examples of this, but this is a sequel that I'm going to rank as Jaws. Uh, 
you know, I would do the same for Empire Strikes Back. I do the same for The Godfather Part Two, and off the top of my head, I cannot think of another sequel. Or, or you know, what I did it for Terminator Two also. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm having a tough time thinking of other examples, but I'm prob- there probably are a few others, but they are certainly the rarity. They are the exception, not the rule. But I'm ranking this as Jaws because I think this is a an extremely well put together, well thought out, well acted, well directed movie with so few flaws. Uh, that I had to struggle to find some of them, and the ones that I did find were good fodder for a discussion, but certainly not anything that took away from my enjoyment of the movie. Uh, I didn't know how you were going to come down on this. I didn't know if this was going to be like a Jaws 2 Plus or something, but uh, my plan to come into this was also to make this Jaws. And for me, it is Jaws. Definitely. All right, cool. So we're going to cut off the discussion of Indiana Jones there, but it will not end there, because... If all works out well, next Saturday, if you go into the Back to the Bins feed, you'll hear Scott and I discussing the comic book adaptation of this movie. All right. Uh, So we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Shorty! Chow Chi! Latsu Tsangsa! Oh my god!